Again, we're continuing with this letter that the Apostle John has written to the churches probably in Ephesus and the surrounding area. And his purpose of having written the letter is that folks in the church have been preaching or teaching that in order to be saved or be kept saved, actually sometimes, they had to do certain things. Now, we're not going to go into all the detail. They were teaching bad doctrine, false doctrine, about the person of Christ and about the effect of the work of Christ. We've gone through all that before. And so what's happening, and this is typical, if we're not well grounded in the truth of the word, we begin to hear something or someone tells us something that challenges us to the place of, I wonder if I'm saved. I'm wondering if, if I can do certain things that I'm going to be forfeiting my salvation. And the effect of all this is that it obviously begins to disrupt and damage their fellowship with God and as a result, their fellowship with one another. So you remember in 1 John 5, 13, John says, look, I've written to these things that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. Based on what? Not based on the fact that I received Jesus 10 years ago, went to the altar and repented. Our salvation is never affirmed on the basis of what we did one day. It's not in the Bible that way. It doesn't mean you weren't saved. It doesn't mean you didn't respond to Christ. It doesn't mean you weren't born again. What it does mean is God does not make that the issue of affirmation. Are we with me today? So when someone says, Gail, how do you know you're saved? The typical answer is what? When I was 15 years old, the Baptist preacher was preaching. I felt the Lord move upon me. I went down and I received Christ. Correct? How do you know you're saved? I asked Jesus to come into my heart. By the way, no one ever does that. It is impossible to ask Jesus to come into your heart. It is impossible. Jesus gives us a new heart, which we receive by faith. Amen. But I know preachers normally say that. Read something the other day. And the preacher was saying, you know, we ask Jesus, we whatever. No. There are three proofs of our salvation. There's the what? Moral proof. Am I obeying God? What does that mean? Am I loving God with the love with which he has loved me? As demonstrated as I love the brethren with the love with which I have been loved by God. Amen? That's a challenge. It's impossible. What is the second proof? Well, that was two proofs. Sorry. Moral relational. And what's the third proof? Doctrinal proof. And when Nick will begin to get into the doctrinal proof next week. So John has been moving in this direction. In chapter 2, 
he's going to give us some very strong commands when we get to verses 15 to 17. But in order to, again, embrace, sorry, in order to cause us to brace ourselves to receive these commands, in verses 1 to 14, he's going to reassure the church. Reassure them of why they're saved. Are you with me? Everybody following where we are. So in verses 12 to 14, because I've skipped the first group, John continues to encourage them in their obedience by explaining the different stages of their spiritual growth. Now, you may not know this. This may be a new revelation to you. But everyone in this room who was saved is at a different stage of spiritual growth or maturity. Amen? How many of you know that a little child is at a different place verbally, emotionally, physically, intellectually, la, 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 than a man or a woman of 20? How many of you know that a person at 20 is in a different place than an old goat like me at 78? We have stages. That was Eddie Cakeman. We have stages of development physically. And in the same way, we have stages of development spiritually. So we have to be aware of that. Because what often happens is we compare ourselves with ourselves. And we look at someone and we say, you know, Jody, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. What's the matter with you? Well, maybe Jody has not matured yet in a particular area. Oh, wow, I wish I could be like, and we're comparing ourselves to someone who may be more mature in us because of the work of the Holy Spirit through a period of time and circumstances. So we begin to hurt ourselves. We begin to make distinctions among ourselves. And we ought not to do that. So he's going to begin to address these issues. And in verse 12, you remember, he already started off, little children, I write these things to you, what? Because you are forgiven. Now, that's good news. But how do you know the forgiveness that God has given to you is going to last until you get to eternal life? How do you know that? You're forgiven. Great. But, Bishop, suppose I do something and God unforgives me because of what I just did. How do you know the absolute security that once we are forgiven, we are forgiven forever. John tells you, little children, I write these things to you. Little children, remember, those who are members of the congregation. Why? Because we are forgiven. Based on what? For his name's sake. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father promised the Son, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Remember that in Psalm 2.8. The Son obeys the Father, goes to the cross, is raised by the Father as affirmation of what Jesus did at the cross has been 100% acceptable to the Father for our salvation. And then Jesus is given the authority to send the Holy Spirit to gather us into the kingdom, correct? 
that promise that the Father gives to the Son cannot ever be broken under any circumstance. Do you see that? That means that our salvation is in God, about God, and for God, given to us to proclaim to us this absolute unity and oneness between God the Father, God the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Do we see this? That's what our salvation is about. So that in us, the glory of this trinity, this intra-trinitarian love, the glory of that is to be seen in our lives who have been brought into this family for God's benefit of being glorified in the Son and we in the Son. Do you see that it's not primarily about us? Are you with me? Come on, come on. It's not primarily about us. It's about who? Whom, sorry. Who? God. It's about God. It's for God. And it's from God. Can we get that? Are we getting that into our souls this morning? So in verse 12, that's what he's done. So 13 and 14, he's going to address two groups. Fathers and young men. I want to go into some of this quickly in this part of it and move to something else. In verses 13a, if, do you know what I mean by 13a, 13b? It means the first part of the verse, the second part of the verse, okay? In 13a and 14a, John says the same thing. He's just repeating himself with a little more elaboration in the repetition. He says this in 13a, I am writing to you fathers, why? Why is he writing to the fathers, the fathers in the faith? Because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. John calls these children, men and women, fathers, is not just addressing the men. It's fathers in the faith. Mature in the faith, we could use it. John is writing to these because they have learned. This is what they have learned. Now, did you just hear what I said? Make sure you get what I just said. They what? Have learned. Extremely important to get that. They have learned. They have come to the place of maturity by the Holy Spirit. They have learned. John calls them fathers because they have learned to walk by the Spirit through the many and varied circumstances and trials of life. How many of us are still going through circumstances and trials of life? That's, that's not bad. Only about a third of the class. Great. The rest of y'all, either y'all have gotten into heaven or you didn't know what was happening. How many of us are still walking through trials in life? All of us are. And what is the primary goal of God in these trials? To mature us in Christ. Remember Romans 8, 28? For God works all things together for the good who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Why am I going through this? Because this is is one of the means with which God is forming 
the clay. Come on up here, y'all ladies. Come on up. I'll wait for you. It's okay. Come on up. Come on. Don't be shy. You don't want to? Okay. So good to have the youth in here. Look, let me just say this. Thank you, young people, for coming in here, okay? I don't call you kids. You're not kids. You're young people. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. And so he, he calls them fathers because they, walk, they learn to walk by the Spirit. Romans, uh, Galatians 8, 16. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. You may remember that. As a result, they have known him from the beginning. They have known him. In other words, they have come to know God in a way, in a depth that looks past the circumstances and looks to the one who is always with them in the circumstances, working the fruit of his love in them, using the circumstances to draw them into himself in fellowship more deeply than they were the day before. That's what God is doing. These are the people who have come to the place of rather than looking for relief, they are looking now for association. Do we understand that? They're looking for not relief. Get me out of here. And I said it this way purposefully, which you'll see in a moment. But they're looking for association. So where are we? When stuff hits the fan in my life and in your life, your first inclination may mean, be, be what? Sissy, what? I got to get out of this. This has to stop. But if you know him who was from the beginning in this way, then once you say, hey, this ain't good, no, no, then you realize, wait, the Holy Spirit just tapped you on the shoulder and says, Carrie, do you remember what's going on? And you say, yes, Lord. Thank you for these opportunities to know you more deeply. Thank you. Everybody knows Clara. Now, is that easy? Where's the struggle? My struggle, my fight is this. I continually have to wrestle with God against myself. Renee, I find that I have to regularly wrestle with God against me. But I can tell you this, and I don't do it perfectly, I for sure, but I can tell you this. My rock-bottom desire is association more than relief. It is. Sometimes it just takes God two or three times, you know, to knock me upside the head to get me to the replace of reminding me of that, A.J. And then I say, yes, Lord. The bottom line is this. What do you want? Relief or association. I want what I need. Which one is it? Association. That's what I need. Therefore, that's what I want. If I'm being faithful 
to listen to the Holy Spirit in me. You see, they have come to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Because they have learned to walk as Jesus walked, to be rooted and grounded in his love. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he was first saved, he was an infant, a child in the faith, correct? You know, sometimes we're strange, aren't we? We, we see someone like Paul and says, well, I mean, you know, that's Paul. But we forget that Paul started off exactly the way every one of us begins in Christ. Is that correct? And so Paul didn't begin after the, on the road to Damascus. All of a sudden, this mature man of God who has such revelation. Let me give you a secret. It, sorry, I'll say it took years. That's bad theology. God matured him over the years. It didn't take God nothing. It didn't take nothing. God took. You see, when you come to God, mostly use the active voice rather than a passive. Remember, he hit the ball, the ball was hit by him. God took him through the various stages of maturity over the years and through the circumstances. Therefore, this is what you hear Paul saying in Philippians 4, 12 and 13. Crucial, crucial, crucial verses. Philippians 4, 12 and 13. Make sure you know these are crucial. He says what? Somebody read the first few words of it. I have learned that in what? Whatever. Come on, come on, speak to me. Do, is it in your notes? Well, read it. I have learned that what, what, what? That in what? Whatever circumstance. Whatever is going on. Whatever they're saying about me. However they treat me. I've learned something, Pat. Nathan, I've learned something. I've learned the, one of the most significant lessons that I can learn as a believer. I have learned what? What? Man, I'm going to complain about that. I have to be careful. I, look, I am talking. Holy Spirit's talking to me, too. I'm going to complain about that. I'm going to be critical of that. I'm going to attack that. I'm going to whatever. No, that's not what he's learned. I have learned what? Come on, what? Do you see it? What does it say? Tell me. I don't remember. What does it say? To be what? Content, satisfied, at rest. Now, how do you know you're content? How do you know you're satisfied when you stop complaining? Now, someone said that one day, and I picked it up, and I can't remember who said it, but the Holy Spirit said it. How do I know when I'm really satisfied with God? Because there's the issue of the satisfaction. How do I know, Debbie? Debbie? When I'm satisfied with God, not with the circumstances, not with me, but with whom? Jan, with God. Everything is about God. 
Do we see that? Nathan, how much is about God? All of it. Everything, Flo. Mama, everything is about God. There's nothing in my life that is not about God. And when you think this way, you begin to realize, oh, the depth of the idolatry in my life. I have to move along. So once I have learned, and as I am learning this, and to the place that I am learning this, Paul says, I've learned it. Therefore, I have a promise. Therefore, what? Verse 13, therefore, what? I am able to do all things. Come on, read it to me. Through him, through Christ, who what? Say what? I didn't hear you. Who strengthens me. You see people say, I can do all things through Christ. That's not true. That's not true, Mike. Unless you have learned to be content in any and every circumstance. Greg, that's when it's true. People, the Christians quote these things sometimes like they are disassociated from everything else in the Bible. You're saved, brother. You can do all things through. That's not true. How many of you can overcome and stop that particular sin absolutely right now because you want to? It's not true. On the basis of verse 12, it is true. Do we see that? It's one of those kind of things that we do with the word of God. We take out a verse and and all of a sudden, you know, we have something that we think we can relate to and depend on. And when it doesn't work, when it stops working or it won't work, then we begin to become critical of God, questioning God. You said this. Well, he did say it, but he said it within a context, Lisa. He said something that is the reason for it. Paul's learned. The apostle in John, verse 13, I'm writing to you, a young man. Why? Because you've overcome the evil one. How did they overcome the evil one? They were strong and the word of God lives in them and they've overcome the evil one. In other words, they have overcome the evil one. They are overcoming the evil one as young men, excuse me, and women in Christ. They are growing and learning how to overcome the schemes of the devil. How? Because they are In the word of God, let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts. What? Occasionally, once in a while, if it's not inconvenient, Paul says, let the word of God, what? Christ, do what? Dwell in your hearts. How much? Richly. Are we there? Are we doing that? You wonder why you're getting your ba-boom-ba kicked around so much by the enemy? You know whose fault it is? Come on, speak to me. Whose fault is it? Say it again. Our fault, Mary. When the devil deceives me and overcomes me and tricks me and, and, and causes, you know, moves me to be tempted and I give in to it. Steve, whose fault is that? It's my fault, brother. You see, it's not Steve's fault because I'm upset with him. It's not Steve's fault because I'm frustrated with this brother. 
what he said and how he said it. That's not Steve's fault. Creature, whose is it? It's my fault. Don't you love the word of God? Why? Because when I'm upset and when I'm frustrated and when I'm, oh, whatever, I'm making my life about me and it's about God. And when I have those feelings and do that and give into that, I am making myself more important than the Lord Jesus who saved me. It's idolatry. What is my response? Oh, Lord, produce in me by the Spirit repentance. That I may not make of myself to be more important than you. Did you realize you were doing that? How many of you can say, I actually didn't know that? Well, now you know it. My guts, my feelings will always let me know. Bo, what? If I'm making too much of myself, correct? You'll know it. You'll know it by the way you react to things, where you criticize, the way you speak about things, where you associate. You will always know it. We are making me more than he. So the question is this. How did these young men and women in the church learn to overcome the enemy? How did they learn? They had learned that they were not fighting the enemy in order to gain the victory. Can we stop thinking that foolishly? We are not contending with the enemy in order to win a victory. We are fighting with the enemy to declare the one victory of Jesus Christ at the cross manifested and applied in his resurrection exaltation. Correct? The victory in my life and in your life has already been won. Can you say amen? Let's be free of these shackles. The victory's been won. You see, God has clothed me with the large clothing jacket, if you would, of the righteous victory of Jesus Christ. I have been clothed. We have been clothed. So we're all wearing these very big jackets, if you would, of the righteousness of Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21? Okay. Now... What do you hope? Do you ever buy your children anything too large? And hoping what? What? They'll grow into it. I, I didn't hear you. They will grow into it. Did you hear that? What a strange woman. <laughs> what a weird person. God has given us this big jacket of the righteousness of Christ, which totally enclothes us so that we through sanctification or growing into it. You see, sanctification can be defined a whole lot of words, but I like to define it this way. Sanctification is the work of God in me, growing me into the big jacket, if you would, of Jesus' righteousness. That's discipleship. That's what's going on in me. So how does Paul learn it? How do these men, how do we learn this? How do we learn it? Well, Paul tells you in chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I won't give all the background of why he's saying this, but let's take a look a second. 
Is it in your notes? Okay. Paul starts off, you know, I knew a man one time. Now, whether he's in the spirit or not, you know, I don't know all that. I just knew a man one time. And this man was taken where? Up to heaven, to the what? Third heaven or called paradise. And he was given or heard words, revelation that was absolutely unspeakable. <gasps> Took his breath away. Oh. Now we know what happened if you read Galatians. Well, in action, St. Corinthians, he said 14 years ago, then you would look back. This is probably, probably the time when Paul, after he was saved, went off to Troas and lived there for a number of years before coming down to be with Barnabas to begin staying in the church at Antioch and teaching. And then that was preparatory to the what? The first missionary crusade. You remember some of that? Something happened, though. Something happened at some time or another then before he started all this, God, the Holy Spirit brought Paul into the very presence of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus sat there with Paul teaching him the purpose of his salvation that is fulfilled in us for his glory. And Paul gets this. Now, you remember Paul? Zealous. Remember that? Zealous. And this guy, when he gets this message, oh, it's called the gospel to the Gentiles. When he gets this and he comes out or trance or back to earth or whatever happened, we don't know, don't know. This is before he started the first missionary journey. This man is ready to go. He is ready to get out there and let everybody know who Jesus is, what he's done, and how to live it for the glory of God. He's ready to what? Hot to trot. And as he begins to run, he goes, <laughs> can't move. It's like my leg right now. Can't move. Man, I have an impediment in me. I have a sin issue. I have a physical issue. Whatever it is, whatever. So his normal, natural, fleshly self says what? God, what? Get me out of this circumstance. Get this person out of my life, for goodness sakes. Anybody ever do that? There's only two in here. Remember what he had said in Philippians 4.12. I've learned that in any circumstance to be content. In 2 Corinthians 12, he's going to tell you how he learned. He's going to tell you what happened to give him the ability to learn. We have to put the word of God together in the right way. So he says, three times I did what? I asked the Holy Spirit, get this out of me. Get this annoying man in my life away from me. Prevent them from stopping, stop talking about me or critically of me or attacking me. Amen? 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 This is where we live, Karen? 
what had happened. In order to cause him not to be puffed up, but to put himself, remember, from the indirect object into the direct object and subject. He did, you know, in order to make it about him, God gave him what is called a what? A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And Paul three times says, get this out of me. You see verse 7 there? Are you with me on verse 7? In order to keep me from being puffed up. What do you mean by that? In order to make me realize and learn life, life is not primarily about for me. It's from God, about God, and for God. Do you see what is happening here? What has to happen? So what's the Lord's response? Somebody look at verse 8. What is it? Um, is that 8? Yeah. What does the Lord say? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. Get this out of me. Then verse 9, what does the Lord say? Let me give you the answer that the, tur- uh, the, uh, the tortoise in Bugs Money says. This is God's answer. Nope. <laughs> nope. Three times he says no. Now, here's the critical thing. I I don't have a lot of time to do this. I wish we had another hour or two, but I'll try to do it, hopefully, in a way that the Holy Spirit will use it succinctly. My grace is what? Is sufficient, satisfied, content, sufficient. Are you following me? Do you see how this comes together? My grace is sufficient, what? For my what? My what? Power is made or matured. Matured. What's the last two words? In weakness. Now, the word I-N is the Greek word E-N, and it has two meanings. In the location of weakness and by the instrumentality of weakness. That's what it means. It means both. My grace is sufficient. Because you see, Paul, in the midst of... Of your weakness. In the midst of that area in your life. That you just seem you cannot overcome the enemy. In the midst of the weakness of your tongue. Of your attitude. Of your misplaced emotions. Of your circumstances. In the midst of that. The power of God is growing the flowers of his grace. So what does it say in verse 10? I'm sorry, yeah, 10. What does Paul say? Oh, wait a minute. I didn't see this. Nick, I didn't see this. I was complaining about my weaknesses. I was trying to struggle of how to get rid of these weaknesses. I was contending against God for the very thing he uses in me. And you can't be successful like that, Sir Charles. You wonder why you're failing so much? Because you're missing the whole purpose and plan and context and means of God in maturing you. Now, for some of us, it should be I never thought of that. I never thought of that. So anyone have weaknesses in here? 
Now, my wife shouldn't have raised a hand, at least for me. Raise a hand for herself, but, you know. She and I today are celebrating 54 years, and she has lived. Wait, 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 wait. Why are y'all looking at her and not for me? All the eyes went over there to her. This is about me, too, you know. See, A.J., I'm upset now. And she has learned that in 54 years, this guy has a few weaknesses. I'm not going on the other side of it. (laughs) What happens is, when we are complaining, judging, critical, upset, frustrated, feel not trusted, feel whatever. We are contending against God for the very method and location of the way he disciples us and grows us. It's idolatry. It's an insult to the Lord of glory. It's to say, Rosa, it's this. This is what you're saying. God, you made a mistake. You shouldn't have done this. Right, Patsy? Now, you would never say that, would you? But the way you're relating to your weaknesses, we are screaming that into the face of God. So what is Paul's reaction? Whoa. Now that I know that my weaknesses are the very location and means of God bringing me into closer and closer fellowship, blessing, usefulness, is in the midst of the mud. Of my weaknesses. How many of you know anything about gardening? We do know this, don't we? That when you put a seed in the ground, you're hoping that it would do what? Grow. Can you imagine having in your front yard a yard that is filled with just mud and all that kind of stuff? It looks terrible. And you want your gardener to really make a beautiful garden of it. Amen? Amen. So you ask him to deal with it, and you come back after a while, and he's removed all the mud, and there's a huge hole in your front yard. Say, what did you do? Well, you told me you wanted to get rid of the weaknesses. You told me you wanted. Oh. The mud is the location in which God grows the grace of his flowers. So there are two things I want to leave you with today as to the mud, as to my weakness. First of all, ask the Holy Spirit, three things then. Ask the Holy Spirit. And some of you need to take notes on this. You're not going to do it. You're going to forget. Ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, continually reveal to me the weaknesses that are in my flesh. These are the areas that you are prone to sin. I don't have a weakness for putting roaches in my mouth. But I have other weaknesses. Other things that are weaknesses. 
ask the Holy Spirit for revelation. Secondly, when he shows you that area of weakness, and most of us already know most of the areas, or many of them, but there are a lot we don't know, then here's how you relate to that weakness. Write it down. As to the potential of sin, weeds growing in the mud, we resist. Do you see that? I'm not resisting the mud. I'm resisting that which is growing in there because of that. I don't want it. I resist that. I'm not resisting the weakness. I'm resisting that which is growing in my weakness. Can we begin to make a differentiation of what God is really doing and what we think he ought to do? Then, once I am rejecting the weakness or the mud as to its potential of sin, I then, at the same time, I am, and here's the difficulty, embracing that weakness as to its potential to grow the flowers of God. Come on, church. Do we see that? There's a double thing here. So think about your weakness right now. Think about that thing. Joe, that is really tough in your life. Think about it. Tommy, think about that thing. Joey, think about that thing. Todd, think about that thing. Adam, think about that thing. Think about it. You have something in mind? Everybody, Mike, you have something in mind? Here's what you do. Father, thank you. Oh, my God. Yes, Jason, thank you. Thank you. I now embrace by faith your work in me to produce flowers of grace. I am now embracing my weakness as to the location of God's grace. If you continue to reject your weakness, there won't be many flowers. And that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? How many of you ever thought of that? Embrace this filthy thing in me? Yes. Because that's where our great gardener goes into the muck and mire of my flesh and begins to deal with it and shows me, here's what's happening, here's what's happening, here's what's happening. I say, thank you, Lord, for showing me all this crud. Now, I embrace your work in the midst of this mud to produce your flowers. Correct? That's how Paul learned to grow. That's how you overcome the devil. You don't overcome the devil by, devil, get out of here. You certainly need to do that, but you better first learn this lesson. Or when you raise your hand against me, he's going to take and break your arm off. Do we see this? Next two weeks, our brother Nick will be teaching. I'll be recovering. That two weeks give you time to recover from me. Because <laughs> I heard Charles say he's not the only one recovering. Okay, we'll be recovering. And I hope to be back in the third week, but we'll have to see how everything goes. He's going to jump ahead of verses 15 to 17 because I really believe the Lord wants me to do that. And, and 
Nick and I walked together, so I asked him permission to do that, which would normally would be his, and he graciously granted me permission. I did not tell him he's, he's going to have to do the other. I did not do that. Two cannot walk together if I do that. And he said he'd be glad to do it. So he'll be jumping next week, two weeks, into verses 18 to what, 26, 7? Then the rest of it. Okay. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Yes. You think he needs to? Come on, brother. Come pray. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. If you have to go, look, if you have to get out of here, I understand that. It's okay. But uh, let's pray.